Well, I'd like to tag our message this morning, Closing the Gates on Toxic Behavior. Say that with me. Closing the Gates on Toxic Behavior. One more time. Closing the Gates on Toxic Behavior. Amen. So if you go on television these days, you can view one of a dozen different home renovation shows, right? There's Good Bones, and there's Hometown, and there's one in Nashville called Joined at the Flip. (laughs) These shows pretty much have the same template, you know. The hosts meet with the owner, and then there's a series of showings, and then there's a house selection of some sort, and then then there comes the meetings. There's meetings, there's planning, there's brainstorming, what's the paint color, what's the flooring, all new windows, all new floor doors, recessed canned lights, there's interior plumbing in the kitchen and the bathrooms, does this wall come down? Better not, it's load-bearing. What about the exterior? Do we build a porch? Yeah. Well, what about landscaping? All these conversations are taking place. And then, of course, you know, there's typically a hitch in the plans that creates some drama before you go to a commercial. Right? And then the the owners, that means the hitch in the plan typically means more money. Right? More money. And so, on, and then on top of this, there's this urgency because we've got to get the whole thing done uh, before the credits roll and the next home renovation show pops up, right? And, uh, and, and, and by the end of the show, the couple moves into the house and you can see that the whole thing has been pulled off by planning and problem solving. But the goal is clear, right? Get the people in the house before the credits roll. Get them in the house before the credits roll. I mean, it all seems so different from day-to-day operations in family life. You see, after the folks move in, the goal is not some construction project in which a general manager uh, project manages various trades. The goal is now the settling of a family into the rhythm of healthy home life and as a Christian minister I would say it's the transformation of a house into a home a house into a home the maturing of a family into a household of faith I would say it's the bonding of parents and children into intimate oneness I would say it's about a home that declares This is where love lives. And that's different from a house construction project. I mean, to build a house in 30 minutes, you need a racehorse, right? You need a racehorse. A racehorse gets things done in an organized way within a certain window of time. That takes urgency, efficiency and some time-sensitive determination but to build a home well that's long term you need a different kind of horse you need a horse to prepare the soil till the soil plant the soil you need a plow horse a plow horse race horse plow horse the one gets the house up The other nurtures the culture within the house. Racehorse, plow horse. 
Now then, why am I mentioning all of this? Well, it's because it has to do with our scripture today in the book of Nehemiah. I want you to think about the images of racehorse and plow horse as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Our scripture reading is chapter 6, 15 to 7, verse 4. We're studying the journal entries of a servant leader named Nehemiah, a Hebrew official of the Persian Empire. So Nehemiah was a Hebrew who worked for a non-Hebrew empire. His boss was actually the emperor, Artaxerxes. And God sent Nehemiah from the palace in Susa of the Persian Empire to Jerusalem to reconstruct the wall so that the culture of Jerusalem and God's people might be vitalized. And what we see in our scripture today is how Nehemiah makes the shift from racehorse to plow horse. Follow along with me as I read our text. So the wall, that's the wall of Jerusalem. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani, that is, Hananiah, and I'll explain that a little later. The governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. So the wall is finished. Hallelujah! In chapters 1 through 6, Nehemiah has blazed at racehorse speed. He prayed, planned the project, prayed some more, traveled to the job site, then he prayed some more, 
Then he inspected the ruins and recruited the people. And then after praying, he problem-solved reconstruction, all while facing behind his back criticism. He made sure the workers were safe. He armed them. They slept in their clothes. No one left the city. He refereed internal disputes about how the Hebrews were to treat one another. And then he fended off an 11th hour assassination attempt. Nehemiah rode at racehorse speed until chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished in 52 days. It started August the 12th, 445 B.C. and finished October the 2nd, 445 B.C. So real wall, real city, real calendar, real guy named Nehemiah, it really happened. Amen. Amen. Think about it. The city was in ruins, and 52 days later, it has been fortified, and it is open and ready for new residents. Verse 16 of chapter 6 says that the enemies, who all along had been trying to intimidate Judah into quitting, these same enemies themselves began to quake, quake, is what it means, because they'd witnessed God's help on behalf of his people. Even unbelievers could see the hand of God in this effort. And they weren't going to dominate Judah anymore. No, 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 no. Their self-appointed superiority over the Hebrews had crumbled into dust. And they realized that they had not merely been opposing the Judeans, they had been opposing God. The God of Israel had empowered His people to accomplish His work in His world against fierce opposition. And you know that reminds me of Acts chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, where the Sanhedrin was warned by an old Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel told the Sanhedrin, after the Sanhedrin had been deliberating over the apostles' gospel preaching, Gamaliel said, you leave these Christ followers alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found opposing God. You know that we're here today, affirms his words. Yes, with God's help, Nehemiah and all of Judah accomplished what was humanly impossible. And a racehorse can only sprint so far. I mean, you can only go so long without changing your clothes. Right? I mean, it's not sustainable. What if the contractors said to the homeowners, look, get used to the fact that you're going to be having to sit in meetings and review paint colors and carpet choices and exterior siding options and various plumbing pictures. That's the way it's going to be from now on as a homeowner. I don't think so. I got some living to do, right? And so, so you know, now that the wall is done, do we go on to another sermon series? Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, you see, <laughs> the same transition that makes a family 
uh, out of a house, the same transition that a family makes from house construction to home building, and, and, and the same transition that a bride and groom make from wedding planning to marriage building, that's what we see here. In the scriptures, we see the transition from wall building to community building. And I'll tell you what, the wall building's easier. Yeah, because bricks don't talk back. <laughs> That's what Nehemiah is going to teach us. <laughs> God's people are regathering in worship, and, and the exile is over. The ex so so this, is, this is a new season that's coming into the lives of God's people. And uh, God's people are coming back to the promised land because God is faithful. Exile is over. There's regathering. It's not like it was before. It's not like it was before. Okay? That takes another kind of horse. And so in these verses, Nehemiah downshifts from the heart-pounding, sweat-dripping racehorse pace to the steady cadence of a plow horse. Church family, behold the wisdom of the plow horse. The, what is that wisdom? Here it is. Choose integrity over toxicity that's the wisdom of the plow horse choose integrity over toxicity so though, though nehemiah governed judah at large he needed leadership over jerusalem proper and for that he chose his brother hanani to be the kind of the um, city manager chief of police and some commentators think that Hanani and Hananiah were the same person. Uh, Hanani is the less formal name than Hananiah, right? Randy, Randall, Hanani, Hananiah, okay? And, and, and verse 2 tells us why Nehemiah chose Hanani. You see that? He was a more faithful man. He was a more faithful man. That is, that word means he could be trusted. He was dependable. If he said he would do something, he would get it done. If not, he'd say so. Okay? He was dependable. You could lean on him. And then he was more God-fearing. That is to say, Hanani had a deep faith. He was a man of conviction. And and we know that from chapter 1. Wasn't it Hanani who first made the 900-mile trip from Jerusalem to the capital city of Susa? Wasn't it Hanani who informed Nehemiah of Jerusalem's plight? I mean, who, could be, who, could, who better could be counted on than the one who courageously and quietly set the whole thing in motion? You see? Now, now, this is particularly true when we compare Hanani's integrity to Tobiah's toxicity in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Remember Tobiah? 
had been in league with Sanballat and uh, Geshem that were enemies of God's people. Tobiah was kind of a part of that little circle. And, uh, and verse 17 says that letters were going back and forth between Tobiah and the nobles. What, what kind of letters? Well, letters that undercut Nehemiah's leadership. You know, le- letters that lobbied for Tobiah as Jerusalem's mayor and chief of police. Letters that informed Tobiah about what Nehemiah was doing so that Tobiah could leak the information to Judah's enemies. So, so, so we got these little mice that are scurrying back and forth and chit-chatting and scheming and conspiring. Why? Why? Verse 18. Verse 18 says that the nobles were bound by oath to him. What's that mean? Well, that, that signals an enmeshment of political and financial commitments all tangled up in an arranged marriage that I read there. And Nehemiah was upsetting their financial power structure. Nehemiah was threatening their commercial interests. They wanted Tobiah as mayor to keep the status quo. So they want, so that Nehemiah comes and Nehemiah didn't build that wall for the old way. Nehemiah is looking ahead to God's people. And they didn't appreciate that. So, you know, they, they're lobbying for Tobiah. Oh, Nehemiah, verse 19. Tobiah's a good man. I mean, his name, what? Yahweh is good. He's one of us. We could trust him. Well, but then Tobiah turns around and tries to intimidate Nehemiah. Nehemiah, people are asking, people are asking me, why, how come, why am I not running the city? And I mean, what am I supposed to tell them? What's Nehemiah thinking? What, what, you know, they're just coming to me. I'm just reporting. But Nehemiah is not going to be intimidated, church. He chooses integrity over toxicity. The wisdom of the plow horse. May I just remind us something that we already know in our hearts? <laughs> what you achieve in leadership is often shaped most by those you allow into leadership. And if you let toxic people in, you will pay a staggering price. Every day, gifted people are quitting toxic cultures, toxic bosses, toxic workplaces. Every day, every day, amazing businesses. Causes, not-for-profits, churches, families, yes, families, miss their mission because someone let toxic behavior sabotage the work. Look at the text here. What you have is Tobiah, who lives on innuendo, gossip, parking lot conversations, and efforts to build his personal and financial power base against Nehemiah. Then you have Hanani, this faithful servant who lives by the fear of God. He respects God. He awes God. He does not want to do anything that would cause embarrassment to his heavenly father. He's a plow horse. Hanani is trustworthy. Tobiah is toxic. Choose integrity over toxicity. Let me define the word toxic because that's a broad word. We hear it. Um, discussed 
in many places, but let, let's let the text define it, all right? A toxic person, according to the text here, is someone who obstructs what God has called you to do or the person God has called you to be. That's how I'm defining it here from this text. A toxic person is someone who obstructs what God has called you to do or the person God has called you to be. And this text teaches us to wisely discern the difference between faithful, God-fearing trustworthiness versus toxicity. And church family, it is not selfish for you to want to be who God created you to be, and it's not selfish for you to do what God created you to do. And, and you know, um, some toxic people will object by saying, well, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> you know, one of the sneakiest complaints against Christians centers around guilt in dealing with toxic people. And this trap needs to be exposed. And God's people, I, I, want, to, I want to free us here, okay? I want to free us here. Look, the evil one knows that he can't stop us from loving and caring because the Holy Spirit leads us to love and care. But what the evil one can do, though, is to urge us to pour most of our God-breathed love and goodwill on people who resent and resist God's grace. And our Lord called this in the Sermon on the Mount, casting pearls before pigs. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In Jesus' day, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, dogs weren't really, uh, you know, house pets. Jesus is talking about the dogs that were scavengers. And uh, Jesus said, don't. I mean, you know, a pig's not going to respect a pearl because it can't. And so, you know, there are people who are so dead set in obstructing what God has called you to do and, and they want to get in the way of the person God wants you to come, become, they refuse to change. And it only takes one. It only takes one. <laughs> I found this quote this week from a 7th century monk. 7th century monk. A guy named John uh, Climacus. Here's what he once said. A single wolf helped by a demon can trouble an entire flock. Is that not true or what? It only takes one. It only takes one. One toxic person can ruin a family, okay? Assault a friendship. Run a business into the ground. And affect a church gathering, okay? And, and this sounds so harsh coming from a minister. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm your pastor who loves you. And part of my role as a shepherd is to, is to feed and then also protect. And I want to try to protect you from toxicity, Yes, I, well, I, I'm seeing here in 
chapters 6 and 7 that toxic people aren't just difficult. They're not just unsaved. And they're not just merely unpleasant. They are basically the kind of people who will take you down and destroy your mission. And they deflate your enthusiasm and they make you feel like you have nothing to say to others. And they're masters at provoking shame and guilt. And as a result, they're draining instead of encouraging. And they use people instead of love people. And they're addicted to self-righteous, rash judgments. And they frequently fight with people instead of enjoying and appreciating them. And, And They may be jealous of healthy people's peace and family and friendships and spend much of their time and effort trying to bring people down to their level of misery rather than blessing others with joy and encouragement. And they often want to be controlling. And it may feel as if they just want you to stop being you. Okay? So here are five signs that you may be in the presence of toxic people. Number one. Toxic people come on too strong, right? They just come on, look, look, Tobiah wants a job. He's lobbying, he's letter writing. He wants what he wants for himself, not for the people of God. And people who come on too strongly when they meet you usually leave just as loudly. Number two, toxic people usually give you advice in your first meeting. All right? Have you met such a soul? <laughs> They want to take over. They say they love you and they have a wonderful plan for your life. Now, are there ways that we can improve? Absolutely, absolutely. But when someone leads off with loads of advice, like, whoa, (laughs) whoa, whoa, I don't know you well enough to receive advice from you yet. Okay, let's, let's, you know. Number three, toxic people tell, rather waiting to be asked, so, you know, in close relationships, it's natural to volunteer opinions because it's done in humility and respect for the person. But toxic people will tell you everything about themselves. Healthy people wait to be asked. Okay. Number four, toxic people want to be at the center of attention. So, and, and see if this has, ha, rings true in your experience. So they want to be at the center of attention, so they get, they get bored with a healthy group dynamic because the group won't tolerate their immaturity. <laughs> okay. And number five, toxic people can't sit still for long. And, and let me put it this way. If you're an employer or you're in HR and you're interviewing someone and you find out they've had five jobs in the last five years, they're probably not going to stay at yours. Okay. And, uh, Nobody's going to want to see me in the fireside room afterwards after I've said this because you're, you're going to think, well, he's going to think I'm toxic. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> anyway, I'd love to see you in the fireside room. But Nehemiah is not going to let Tobiah in his city. Okay. And so it's, look in chapter 7, verse 3. He limits access to Jerusalem. Do you see that? So the city opens in broad daylight. We're not, it's not going to open at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's going to open at noon in broad daylight. Why? Because he's limiting access. The city's vulnerable. The, the city hasn't been populated yet. So, you know, just because the wall's up doesn't mean the city's vibrant and healthy. There needs to be a, you know, there needs to be a population within the city. 
And guards, therefore, are to be posted at every gate and in the neighborhood. And so they're on the lookout. They're just on the lookout for toxic behavior or toxic people. And so they're going to limit access at the get-go. So here's a hard question. Here's a hard question. Do you need to guard the gates of your heart from a toxic relationship? Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah yes, you do. Actually, that's not a question. Do you need a fast from a toxic person? Mm, people rarely describe fasting as fun or easy, whether it's food or screen time or entertainment or beverage or salt or sugar or caffeine. Christ Christian fasting is a test to see what desires control us. And relationships are no exception because people... People can become idols too, can't they? And fasting or, or putting space, putting distance in troubling relationships can recalibrate our hearts back to Christ. And, and again, you know, you say, well, I thought I'm supposed to influence them for Christ. Well, yes, we are salt, we are light, and do they really want to be influenced? I mean, you only have so many hours in the day. And the problem with pouring your time and energy into toxic people is that after your coaching efforts, they are no better, and you're drained. And when you want it more than they want it, well, there you go. But beware when you set those boundaries. Toxic people will try to make you the problem. And they'll try to make it about how you're responding to their toxicity rather than their toxicity itself. Please don't take the bait. You don't have to participate in a toxic Persian, uh, uh, per person's delusion. Okay? You, you don't even have to have a debate. It, because it's futile to debate logic with illogic thinking. And you're not going to get far debating theology with someone who's spiritually dead. S simply say, simply say, I love you, I'm sorry, I've made my decision. If you think I'm compromising my faith, pray for me. But this is what's going to happen. Okay? And in the end, seek wise counsel and live by Nehemiah's prayer, right? It's the prayer he's been praying throughout this entire book. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. It's the last prayer. It's the last verse in Nehemiah 13.31. Remember me with favor, my God. Because what matters more than whether a toxic person thinks you're acting like a Christian is whether God thinks you're acting like a Christian. So the best thing you can do to avoid toxic people is to hitch yourself to a plow horse that is committed to a long obedience in the same direction. And you hang around those horses, and you'll become one. And I had a wonderful Zoom conversation this week I want to share briefly with you about with a pastor named Dr. William J. Shaw, the pastor of White Rock Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I was, I was interviewing him about another pastor that I'm doing research on, and uh, he and I spoke, and I said, Dr. Shaw, how long have you been the pastor of White Rock Baptist Church? 
He said, well, I started in 1956. He's been there 65 years. He started there, he started there five years before I was born. <laughs> I've, just, I've just been here 32 years. <laughs> I'm a puppy. <laughs> that is a long obedience in the same direction. That's, that's plow horse. And I had exactly 30 minutes with Dr. Shaw. That's what I was told. I, I had exactly 30 minutes with Dr. Shaw. And at the end of my 30 minutes, he, he just simply said, he did it so gracefully and with poise. He said, well, I've d been delighted to visit with you. I need to tend to other responsibilities in our church. And then he said this, our church is participating in an oral recitation of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. People have signed up to read the Bible out loud. He said, we started at the first verse of Genesis and we will conclude at the last verse of Revelation and ongoing, continuous. I marveled at that. I thought that, wow, we should do that. Huh? Amen? Amen. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Talk about health. Talk about community. Talk about integrity. Talk about building the people of God. My goodness. That's the wisdom of a plow horse. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. When a culture is healthy, toxic people really won't stick around. And no one is kicked out. Because you see, just as a healthy body wards off disease, a healthy spiritual culture wards off the toxic. And when your culture is ultra-healthy, the toxic get no traction or validation, and your long-term investment in fearing God and being faithful will pay off in ways you've never expected. Because you see, the people of God here are part of a story that God is writing. To his glory. And that's the point of the remainder of chapter 7. From chapter 7, verse 5, to the conclusion of the chapter, verse 73, our ancestral lists, a genealogy to remind Judah of their identity. In verse 66, Nehemiah says the whole assembly together was 42,360. So that's how many folks came back from Babylon. That's it. This is the nation now. This is who is left. And in chapter 11, Nehemiah is going to hold a lottery, and one out of ten will, will occupy the city as residents and populate it. Because, you see, the city is in a land belonging to the people of God. And it's a story that goes all the way back to Abraham. And God chose Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and through you all nations will be blessed. Your life belongs to God. It's the story of redemption and deliverance from toxic sin. It's the story of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, we are here. 
We are here, according to Gamaliel, because God cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped, church. Because it's His church. And it's His kingdom. And it outlasted the Babylonian Empire. Outlasted the Persian Empire. Outlasted Alexander the Great. It outlasted Rome, the eternal city. It'll outlast every empire and nation. It'll outlast China and Russia and America. Every nation, every, every nation will be, will be superseded by the eternal kingdom of God because God is doing His work. And Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have an identity. You belong to God. Your life belongs in God's great story. And understand that God's concern is not just as the people in whole, but their individual names there. Why, there's Hagabah, there's Shalmai, there's Besai, there's Hakufah, there's Bauzith. Who are these? God knows who they are, and God knows your name. He knows your story. He remembers he records. Even though the world may forget you or us, God won't. He won't, church. And in the Gospels, when Jesus sent his disciples out on a preaching and healing mission, why they said, Lord, my goodness, look what we were able to do in your name. And Jesus responded in Luke 10, 20, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's right, church. Jesus shows us where to find our joy. We're saved. We're his people. Our names are written in his book. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem. And he loved us before the foundation of the world, before we did anything for him. And Jesus reminds us that the joy of gospel identity is greater than the joy of gospel ministry. Do you believe that? And I need to hear that when things aren't going well. But Jesus said it to the 72 when things were going supernaturally well. Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the sustainable, never failing, dependable, plow horse joy of all of life. Oh yeah, ministry success is seasonal, but resurrection, that's eternal. Amen? Amen.